So uh, I went to Christian college for four years, studied the Bible and theology, church history, and practical ministries for another six years in seminary and grad school. In grad school, I've worked in ministry for almost 25 years uh, with children, students, adults of all ages, sizes, shapes, and smells. And uh, those number now, those relationships number in the thousands, right? Personal relationships of all types, ranging from amazing to downright ugly and difficult. So believe me when I say simple pattern recognition is good evidence for me to back up the claim that I've got a pretty good idea of what's going on in most situations and with most people. Been there, done that, worn the t-shirt, been around the block, seen a thing or two, this isn't my first rodeo. I know the ropes, I know the drill, and I know the score. So I've come to believe that I perceive most situations and most people from a fairly accurate vantage point. I've seen it all. I've heard it all. I've studied it all. I've said it all, right? So I feel at least like I'm pretty sure, thank you very much, that I have a good idea of what's going on, where you're headed, what you need, and I'm just standing there in a conversation waiting for you to stop talking so I can tell you what the next step is that you need to take when you start listening. I have a feeling, right? I'm just being honest about some of this. I have a feeling that I perceive most situations and most people with a pretty high degree of insight and accuracy. Just like many of you probably do. I feel that way until it becomes crystal clear that I do not perceive most situations, and most people as accurately as I feel. One thing I've definitely learned in life and in ministry, and you could take this to the bank, you never really know what's going on in people's lives. You think you do, right? You think you do, but quite often you don't have the slightest earthly clue of the context. You literally cannot have enough empirical data to accurately understand what's going on in people's lives and the context and the situations for those who are closest to you, let alone those who are like in Washington or on Facebook or people you don't relate to who are far away, right? Like one thing I've definitely learned in life and ministry is you never really know what's going on. You think you do, but quite often you don't have an earthly clue. In fact, listen carefully because we're going to preaching right here. There is nothing like experiencing just a little bit of life mixed with a little bit of pride to practically guarantee you are totally unaware of what's going on in many situations with many people. You see, things are not always what they seem. We think we judge accurately, but we are dumber than we think. Don't, don't write that part down, please. Uh, it's a little like this. Just this week, um, I, had a, I had a friend who was standing toward the end of a very long line at Starbucks. And, uh, and, and at the front of the line was a power-dressed woman. You know the type, right? Tallish, professional, heels, makeup, hair did, put together, right? So she gets her coffee and walks out the door with this sort of power-dressed purpose, and the next person in line steps up to get her drink. Woman number two, the next one in line there, was what we might also call sort of power-dressed because, well, she was wearing uh, a bulletproof vest and a badge. We tracking? Yeah. So right before 
the first woman reaches the door to leave. She stops for a second and turns around, walks right in front of the second woman, who by that time was trying to order, right? The one with the gun on her belt, that one, woman number two. So Miss Heels starts sort of talking with purpose here and being all smiley and smart-alecky and, and even putting her arm on Miss Badge. And Miss Badge is holding her arms up in protest. And suddenly the, the, the barista, his name's Tony, he holds his hands up like, you've put me in a tight spot here, ladies. Like, go ahead and arrest me. So after about another 10 seconds of animated exchange between Miss Heels and Miss Badge, which my friend was feeling frustrated about because he couldn't hear what they were saying, right? And he's kind of pushy and all up in other people's business and thinks that he knows what's going on from afar, right? That friend of mine. So after a few more seconds of animated exchange, uh, Miss Heels resumes her power walk out the door while Miss Badge stands there smiling to herself and just kind of shaking her head. So uh, my friend is in shock at the end of the line, thinking he was about to see something go down, feeling like he has just avoided being a witness on the evening news, until he gets right to the front of the line and asks Tony the barista what was going on, and he just says, oh, she just wanted to pay for, for the second lady's drink, that's all. And there was my friend being all judgy from the back of the line, thinking he had perceived things accurately. Right? After all, he's been in ministry for decades. He's seen it all. He's heard it all. He's studied it all. He said it all. And you laugh. But before we go any further, gotcha, it wasn't even me. <laughs> Judging know-it-alls. <laughs> all you self-righteous know-nothings. Uh, it was actually my friend Aaron Weimer, who's senior minister at a church in Jonathan City, uh, and he needs to repent of thinking that he has perceived things more accurately than he really has. <laughs> You're welcome, Aaron. Uh, things are not always what they seem, are they? We go through life pretty self-assured. We see the world accurately. We watch the video of the dude plowing down the innocent woman standing on the sidewalk. We wonder how he could be so, so sort of violent out of nowhere until we see the piano coming down from the top of the screen, narrowly missing the woman who was totally unaware. Far more often than we care to admit, we are not perceiving the world remotely as accurately as we think or we feel we are. Here's how deeply rooted this problem goes. Here's where this dynamic of human misperception comes to the fore in our passage and in this series today. What we don't see accurately, that we think we see accurately, is that the price of forgiveness for our sin is more than we can possibly pay. The price of forgiveness for our sin is more than we can possibly pay. And this is more important for us, believers or non-believers, than it sounds when you first hear it. Meaning, at least for the believer, we think we know that the price of forgiveness for our sin is more than we can possibly pay because we know Jesus, right? We've been hearing this for years. We've been hearing people like me say this. We've read about Jesus in the Scriptures. We know He alone is sufficient. But our behavior shows otherwise. 
our behavior shows we really don't believe that we cannot possibly pay the price ourselves. We also don't believe that no one else can possibly pay the price for forgiveness ourselves. Otherwise, why are we so good at concocting for ourselves and others in our lives ways for them to pay the price by manipulating each other relationally, by working ourselves to the bone, by hurting ourselves or someone else? All of those relational things are actually means of trying to insist that we or others pay the price, that we get back justice that we pay back an injustice owed to someone else. Those are all means of paying the price. (laughs) But that's not how this works. That's not how this works. You see, viewed accurately, the price for forgiveness is more than we can possibly pay. And we learned this today from a strange source uh, that you may not expect. Uh, we, We learned this from Cain, the world's first murderer. Cain represents for us today uh, the problem that we have no recourse for sin, which is a deeper, more fundamental problem than we think and than we feel. We cannot pay the price of forgiveness from sin. Jump in with me at Genesis 4. We're going to start at verse 8, spend some time in Genesis 4, and then we'll jump uh, back to a few other places. Genesis 3 is next. But look at Genesis 4, spend some time there in verses 8 through 16 where we see how we cannot pay the price for forgiveness. Genesis 4, starting in verse 8, says this, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Meaning Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's sons. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, uh, presumably to corner Abel without anyone else being around here. And it says this, When they were in the field, When he had a chance, Cain rose up against, which is a Hebrew way of saying this was premeditated. He rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Implication being that Cain was waiting for just the right moment, right? When no one else is around. So this is a way of saying this is premeditated. He rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, verse 9. Think about this. Where is Abel your brother? As if God doesn't know where Abel is, right? God doesn't ask this because he doesn't know where Abel is. He asks this because he wants to give, contrary to what we often think in the beginning of Genesis, it's just not all judgment for sin. It's also grace. This is an opportunity, this question from God, for Cain to confess and to repent. The question is to draw out from Cain the chance to come clean and to turn back. This is a parallel to one chapter earlier in Genesis 3 when God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Like he asked that immediately after they had sinned. God asks this in Genesis 3, just like here in Genesis 4, not because he doesn't know where they are, not because he doesn't know where Abel is, but because he wants to give them the opportunity to confess and to repent. In fact, to make the point, this entire dialogue here in Genesis 4 between Cain and God starts because God initiates the conversation. He initiates this question. He initiates the opportunity to confess and to repent. And so, so Cain wasn't the one seeking to be right with God. It was the other way around. You see, 
God is seeking to restore relationship and to provide a way out here because, and this is key today, because God knows that Cain does not know how to get out of this. He knows Cain has no recourse and cannot pay the price for forgiveness himself. So when God asks, where is Abel your brother? (laughs) He is trying to lead Cain to confession and repentance. Would that we had a heart to restore like God. We preach it. He is trying to lead Cain to confession and repentance. And in response, (laughs) Cain says uh, probably the wrong thing to say here uh, with an angry and sarcastic tone. Verse 9, he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) Settle down, murderer, right? This is a small window here into Cain's anger. Cain is actually angry at God because in the context before this, God accepted his brother Abel's offering and he didn't accept his own offering. So Cain uses his words as weapons here. I mean, think about it. He knows he can't kill God. Just like we don't want to kill people, right? So we verbally murder So seeing that Cain isn't really responding well to the question to draw him out, uh, God says this, verse 10, let's keep reading. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now press pause. Notice here that the blood is personified here in verse 10. God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me. From the ground. This is figurative language to help make a point. And here's the point. Notice it says, the blood is crying out to me, meaning to God. These two little words here in verse 10 may seem like a rather unimportant detail, but if you think about it, track with me, they make a big difference here. The blood, think about it this way, the blood is crying out to God for justice because think about it, what's Cain going to do If the blood cries out to him, resurrect Abel? No. The blood, in a sense, though figurative here, obviously, is meant to point out that only God brings justice at a more fundamental level than we possibly think. Abel's blood is crying out to God for justice because why cry out to someone who cannot fix your problem, right? Would that we made that same transition in our horizontal relationships. Abel's blood's crying out to God for justice because why cry out to someone who cannot fix your problem? This sounds weird to say, but Abel's blood knows the score better than we do when it comes to fixing the problem of injustice for sin. I'm going to say something here that is both depressing and freeing. Uh, But I think it's something that any real follower of the Lord must come to understand. And I, and, I, and I mean this as definitively as I say this. You and I are literally empirically unable to fully understand, account for, and administer justice for the problem of sin. It is a problem Abel's blood understood 
figuratively. And it's a problem even Cain here, despite his rebellion against God, understood at least at some level. Keep reading verse 11. And this is God describing the consequences of Cain's sin uh, that led up to Cain's uh, rebellion. Verse 11, now you are cursed from the ground. This is God describing to Cain the consequences. Now you are cursed from the ground. In in Genesis 3, the ground itself was cursed, but now that sin has sort of spread to uh, condemn uh, Cain as well. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. In that context here, where warring families and tribes lived by the eye for an eye law of the land, uh, and where he would have had to scavenge for food because the ground no longer yielded its strength, as God says here. Verse 12 is like a death sentence for Cain. And it is notably the first death sentence for sin. That's why later on in the scriptures, there's a lot of this talk about the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 and the like. So pretty serious consequences here. Now notice what Cain says next, despite his rebellion and anger against God. Look at this verse 13. This points at the idea that even Cain at some level understood uh, where justice really comes from. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. My punishment is greater than I can bear. This is Cain's, okay, I don't really see it accurately moment. This is Cain coming to terms with and realizing that he has sinned in a way that goes beyond his ability to pay. My punishment is greater than I can bear. He recognizes that his sin has consequences that go beyond his resources to make up for. This is key. You can't follow Jesus, you can't love Jesus, you can't accept the cross of Christ unless you understand this fundamental truth that your sin and the consequences of your sin go beyond your resources to make up for. And not only can he not right the wrong, Cain here, but the consequences feel like a death sentence to him. Read verse 14. Behold, you've driven me away today, him speaking to God. Cain speaking to God, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face shall I be hidden. I'll be hidden from your presence. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Not only am I in danger of starvation or being killed, right? Which is uh, ironic for a murderer, but I will be cast out from your presence. That's the punishment that is greater than he can bear. This may or may not be outright uh, confession and repentance here. Uh, but at the least, it is on Cain's behalf recognition that he is unable to pay the price required to forgive him for his sin. My punishment is greater than I can bear. <laughs> but look even here at God's response. God has a plan. He's had a plan all along. It finds its fruition in Jesus. But we see that plan hinted at even in Genesis 3 and 4 that we're seeing here. Look at Genesis 4. Look at God's response, the hint of God's plan to account for sin, even way beyond Cain's ability to do so. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Not so. 
If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. This is just a way of saying vengeance shall be taken on the offender completely all the way around. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. We don't know what that sign was. And then it says, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He went away to deal with being a fugitive and a, a wanderer. Interesting feature here about verse 15, that even now at this point in Genesis, points to how God had a plan beyond that immediate context, beyond Cain's understanding, beyond his ability to pay for the forgiveness of his own sins. It says there in verse 15, lest any who found him should attack him. That same uh, verbiage, part of that, is used in the Passover in a couple places to describe the blood that protects those in the home, lest any who find it should attack them. This is the writer of Genesis hinting that there's provision coming. In fact, turn back to Genesis 3. Look at verses 14 and 15 for a, a foretaste of what we see here in Genesis that becomes a trajectory throughout the whole Old Testament, if you're looking for it. Look at Genesis 3, 14 and 15. They say, the Lord God said to the serpent, this is right after Adam and Eve had sinned, because you've done this, God talking to the evil one, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And look at this, verse 15. I will put enmity, strife, uh, battle, conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 says there will be this ongoing conflict, this battle between the offspring of the evil one and the offspring of Eve. The word for offspring here is in the singular. And notice that the serpent's offspring is dealt a death blow to the head, the woman's offspring merely a heel bruise. In the only two places where God verbalizes a curse throughout all of Scripture, he also gives a promise. Genesis 3 and 4. The only two places God himself verbalizes a curse, he also gives a promise. And while Christ isn't explicit here in Genesis 3, the implication is clear that God has a plan, a specific plan, a singular offspring plan. In fact, look ahead at Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. What we're talking about in a sort of seed form here uh, becomes explicit in the New Testament. Romans 5, 18 and 19. This is an explicit statement of how Christ's once for all sacrifice undoes not only the sin of Adam, but also our sin. Therefore, verse 18, as one trespass, the trespass of Adam, led to condemnation for all men. That's just a word meaning all humans. So one act of righteousness, meaning Jesus' act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all humanity, for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus's, the many will be made righteous. There was a plan all along. It finds its fruition in Jesus in a way that accounts for all sin for all time for those who recognize the cross. And since we're on a roll, look at how 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 make explicit the idea that Christ became the sacrifice to pay for for the forgiveness of sin that we can't. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, he himself, meaning Jesus, bore, remember, Cain, I can't bear my sin. He himself, Jesus, 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Isaiah 53 also says that. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. First Peter uh, 1, 19 and 21 say that God planned before the foundation of the world to use the blood of Jesus to purify our souls. Think of how profound and amazing and precious this truth is. First Peter 1, 19 to 21. From the very beginning, in fact, it says before the foundation of the world, God planned to use the blood of Jesus to purify your soul because you cannot. All along, Christ was the plan. All along, Christ was the plan to bear the punishment. We couldn't. You see, you can't pay for your sin and neither can anyone else. You must feel this to your bones if you follow Jesus. You can't pay for your sin. And neither can anyone else. The Bible teaches that humanity cannot administer true justice. When God said vengeance is mine, he means it. When it comes to getting back what we've lost because of sin, or making up for the mess that we've made, it is God's responsibility alone to fully administer that justice. When God says vengeance is mine, He means it. So we can all relax, amateur avengers of justice. Really. We can all relax and not having, not having to meet out what we can't. Not having, not having to manipulate from others a messianic weight on the relationship that no human being save Jesus could ever live up to. You need not and you cannot gain back what you've lost or what is owed. The only recourse you have is to claim the cross of Christ as enough because that's the only way to right the wrongs. I mean, listen, if we lived out this truth, if we gave up thinking that we have to even the score, if we stopped being neurotic about paying back what we can't personally, if we stopped holding others responsible for paying back what they can't, it would mean nothing less than a winsome corporate witness. 
because others would see a people of grace who experience freedom because they treasure the cross because it does what they can't. Let's pray, friends. Lord, again, we beg for your forgiveness. We have ultimately made idols of ourselves, manipulating others around us, crucifying them and crucifying ourselves as functional means of paying the price for forgiveness. Lord, for this, along with the rest, forgive us with the cross of Christ that makes real the promise you made from before the foundation of the world that you could make a way when we couldn't. Lord, we, uh, we love you for accounting for us. We love you for uh, teaching us about your son, Jesus. We're grateful for the word of, for your word that teaches us and shows us uh, through which we can have relationship with you, through which we can understand a relationship with uh, the lived word, your son, Jesus, who is righteousness for us, who is adequate when we are not, who is more than enough when we are nowhere close. Give us, Lord, our freedom to live in that truth for ourselves and with others. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.